0: As we pray, uh, just want to remind you to pray for our women's retreat. I think we have some over 200 women in Irvine this weekend. Let's pray that God would be kind to them as they finish up their retreat and that he would continue to bear fruit from their time together over the days and weeks to come. So we pray with me. Dearly, Father, we thank you for your kindness. We thank you for the opportunity that the ladies of our church get to get away this weekend to spend time uh, not only with one another, most importantly, to spend time with you. And we pray that you would do a good work in them, that they would come home not just encouraged or challenged or instructed, but ultimately transformed for their good and for your glory. And Lord, we pray the same for us uh, this morning as we come before your word, that you would change us, Lord, that the gospel would mean everything to us. We want to be a people of the gospel. We want to preach it. We want to um, be willing to suffer for it, Lord. We want to even be willing to die for it. We want it to be everything to us. So we thank you, Lord. We love you. We praise you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, again, good morning. Uh, Before we get started, I know some of you have been praying for me. So just a quick health update. If you are newer to the church, uh, summer of 2022, I had open heart surgery for a valve issue that I was born with. There was a complication with the surgery, and my sternum uh, never fused properly, which Was really limiting what I could do physically, but by God's grace, they just cleared me for most normal physical activity. Um, They did say to not bench press heavy weights, so I told them I'm trying to avoid that for like the last 30 years. So I think we're good. I think we're safe there. But I mean, really, thank you for your prayers. It means more to me than you know. It's an undeserved grace. I appreciate your continued prayers as I still work through certain health challenges, but. I think more than anything, just pray for faith that uh, on the on the good days, the bad days, I would see them all as God's kindness and grace. So with that, uh, if you have your Bibles, open with me to Galatians chapter 1. October is our outreach month, as Leighton mentioned. Uh, and needless to say, it's not the only month we think about outreach or do outreach. It's a month, in a sense, where we remind ourselves why every month is really outreach month. We can't forget those things that are the most important to us, and And so maybe we could put it this way. We don't want the good news to become old news. And I I think that can happen, right? Something that seems so great. And over time, it kind of loses a bit of the excitement. Um, Between my three brothers and myself, there are 15 kids, so 15 cousins. And I remember when Zoe, the oldest, was ready to be born. That that was like big news. We were so excited, right? And the whole families at the hospital were sitting in the, the waiting room for hours and so much anticipation, so exciting. And then over time... Uh, Another cousin was born, and another, and another, and seriously, by the last ones, I think I got a text, I don't even know, and it probably wasn't even on the day they were born, it probably wasn't even about them, it was about soccer or something else, and uh, I think I met all of them, I'm not sure, but I mean, that's how it is, right, the good news kind of becomes old news over time, but that can't be true of the good news of Christ. And remember, our mission is, as a church is to make gospel-centered disciples who exalt and proclaim Christ. And this means that our mission is not only that we would invest in this church family to live out the gospel, to grow in love and faithfulness, but that we would also reach out to the world by making Christ known for eternal life and for everyday life. So, in light of Outreach Month, uh, later on I'll, I'll give you an update on some of the some of the things that we're doing, and specifically in the Air Mercy Ministries, we'll get to hear an update uh, from one of our missionaries. And on top of this, there's a lot going on this um, this month. A lot of outreach opportunities. We have a golf uh, outreach and um, and a chance to minister to the international students in the area. There's our fall festival, our Halloween alternative. Uh, so, I really want to encourage you to visit our events page on our website so that you can know how to be involved. With that, let's jump into our study now appropriately. We're in a section of Galatians in which Paul is defending the gospel he preaches by sharing some of his testimony. And one of the blessings is this, is that through his testimony, we really learn why the gospel was so important to Paul, that he, that he would preach it, that he would defend it, that he would suffer for it, and ultimately that he would die for it. The gospel really was everything to Paul because it was the gospel that gave him Christ, right? It was the gospel that gave him God through Christ. And so what we have been considering during this outreach month is why this should be true for us as well. We must be a people, we must be a church that is about the gospel. Now, this is not novel, and I don't think any of you who are believers would say evangelism is unimportant or that we shouldn't be about the gospel. But that being said, we have to ask, why aren't more of our lives outreach-focused? Why don't we have a greater passion for, the, for people to know Christ? And, and I'm not saying that outreach and evangelism are the only thing, but are they anything? Right? I think a lot of our lack of commitment comes down to just the issue of, of priorities, like what is most important? For most of us, that is, that's work, and that's school, and that's family, and that's friends. And so gospel ministry gets kind of pushed way down the list. And so with this in mind, my goal this morning isn't to guilt you into doing more, but I do hope our scripture will convince you that the gospel is worth our lives. I mean, really worth it. It it is saving, but it is so transforming and so freeing as well. It is worth everything. And so we'll jump into our Galatians passage. We began the outline last week. We'll continue it this week. The key idea we looked at was this. The gospel that gave me life is worth my life. The gospel that gave me life is worth my life. And we, we kind of it left it in a personal form because we want to kind of ask ourselves, can we say that with faith and conviction? Can I say the gospel that gave me life, it's worth my life? Right, not just worth my Sunday mornings or a bit of obedience or maybe some giving and serving, but it's worth my life. Can we say that? So again, last week we looked at the first four points of the outline, they're in your notes, but let's jump down to verse 16 in our passage. And just quickly, if you're new, you're visiting, let me bring you up to speed of where we are in this letter, but but Paul wrote this letter to the churches in Galatia, modern-day Turkey, to combat false teachers who had infiltrated the church and were teaching a false gospel. And they were a group who professed to be Jewish Christians, but they were arguing that Christians still needed to live according to the Old Testament law, and the Gentiles, those were non-Jews, had to be converted not only to Christianity, but really to Judaism as well. And one specific idea was that Gentiles had to be circumcised. And so Paul writes this letter to counter that kind of false teaching. Right? The true gospel of Christ says that salvation is a free gift of God that we embrace by faith. That there's nothing we can do to earn it, or, uh, like carrying out the Old Testament law. Now, chapters 1 and 2 of the letter are largely going to focus on Paul's testimony as evidence of the gospel. The chapters 3 and 4 are more kind of a theological defense. And the chapters 5 and 6 are how the gospel works itself out in our lives. So, as we we continue in our passage, Paul's giving his testimony, and he's continuing a line of, of reasoning that he really began in the first verse of the letter. And that's that he's saying, my gospel that I preach is true because I got it from Jesus himself. It wasn't plagiarized from the apostles. As we'll see in a moment, he he writes this letter at least 14 years after he was saved. And so the argument from the false teachers was that, well, maybe he heard it from the apostles and then he perverted it over time. But Paul insists that not only did he get his gospel from from Jesus himself, but he hadn't even really spent much time with the apostles at all. Right in verse 16, Paul says he's saved to preach the gospel But importantly, he doesn't even go to visit the apostles to get their approval, right? He knows his gospel is the true gospel. So look at verse 16 again. But but when he was pleased to reveal his son to me, in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately go consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, this would be Peter, And remained with him fifteen days, but I saw none of the other apostles except James the Lord's brother. And what I'm writing to you, before God I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Sicilia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea, of Judea, and that are in Christ. So the point is that after he was saved, it wasn't until three years later that he even met up with the apostles. And then only two of them, and even then only for a very brief period. And so again, he's saying hey, the gospel that he preaches it's straight from Jesus himself. He's not preaching a message distorted by the, the apostles, distorted from the apostles because he had barely seen the apostles. And in fact, he's virtually unknown to the Judean church. And, and Paul's point really is that there's only one gospel. I mean, that's why he's preaching it. That's what becomes the the the, the heart of Galatians. Just one gospel, the only gospel, the true gospel. The reformers <clears throat> used to, the reformers put it sola, right? They used to use that Latin word for alone. And that becomes part of their creed, right? Salvation was by grace alone, through faith alone, and Jesus Christ alone, for the glory of God alone, right? And that's why we focus on the gospel alone. Now, with that in place, let's look at three more reasons the gospel is worth our lives. Because that's something that we really see in this passage. Paul's testimony reflects the reality that the gospel is worth everything, so first reason the gospel is worth our lives, point number five in your notes, because the gospel pursues true glory instead of the world's shadow glories. Now, as we continue in this passage, we see Paul's next argument. Look at the last verses in the chapter, Galatians 1, through 24. And I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing that said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy, and they glorified God because of me. So why is Paul including this? And in part he does it to continue an earlier discussion, that his life only makes sense in light of the gospel that transforms. Remember, he went from a terrorist to, to a pastor, from a persecutor to a preacher. It really was stunning. And so his argument was, so you want to know that the gospel I preach is real? Just look at my life. This is something only God could have done. As an application last week, we asked, okay, what in your life can only be explained by the gospel? It doesn't take the gospel to explain most of the things that we live for. It doesn't take the gospel to explain a desire for money or, or for success or for people to like us. So, what in our lives can only be explained by the gospel? Now, as we continue, we see another truth in that last line that gets to Paul's motive as well. Verse 24, and they glorified God because of me. Now, realize that Paul is not including this uh, uh, just kind of obligatory praise, but it's an important argument because he's saying the gospel, it was about God, not about man. Remember, the false teachers are saying, you know, you have to do certain things to be a Christian, but if that's the case, who should get glory? It should be people. Right, They're the ones that are good enough and strong enough and moral enough or whatever. But if it's all Christ, and he can do, uh, he can do what he did in, in Paul's life, then he gets all the glory. And it reminds us that I think our lives are not supposed to be about us. They're meant to point to the power and love and grace and mercy of our Savior. Now, this is a good argument for Paul's gospel being the true gospel. Right? Their gospel was people-centered, his gospel was Christ-centered, but it's also almost unmotivating because it means it's about something else. Right? Most often, we're motivated by what's in it for us. Right? So to say this is all about God uh, may not seem to like move the needle much. Like, hey, I want you to commit your life to someone else. But realize, though we think like that, we weren't actually designed that way. As humans, we were made by God and for God. And so to make ourselves the center of life will never end up well. I mean, we live in a culture where the self is focused on like no time in our history. Self-esteem, self-fulfillment, self-actualization, self-love. They're readily embraced and preached. I mean, think how much is said about being the authentic you, about doing what makes you happy, about being true to yourself. And yet the problems and struggles of people have never been greater. Statistically, the mental health needs in our country are larger than they've ever been. And though our society has its explanations, in the end, we have to realize we're just not meant to live for ourselves. We were meant to live for God and His glory. That is where we'll find our greatest hope and peace and joy. I mean, think about it this way. Have you ever seen a child so unhappy because they don't get what they wanted? Maybe a toy or a snack or something along those lines? It's the result of living first and foremost for themselves, right? It's, it's about them. They, they want something. They're not getting it. And yet I use a child as an example, not because they're the only ones doing it, but because it's just a bit easier to see in them. But in reality, this is all of us. We, we do the same thing. If I'm about myself, then I will be constantly unhappy when I don't get what I want, Right? When people don't treat me how I want, when my kids don't behave how I want, when my spouse doesn't love me how I want, when the weather isn't as nice as, as I want, when my health isn't as good as I want, I'm going to be unhappy. Right? I'm no different than the kid who doesn't get the toy that they want. I may hide my tantrums or not, but my heart is still not at rest. And what this means is that when we live for God and his glory, as we were designed to, we will find our souls at rest. We will know joy and thankfulness. We'll experience hope and peace. I mean, this is why Paul lived the way that he did. Like we keep saying, he would defend the gospel. He would suffer for the gospel more than any Christian we've ever heard of. And then he would die for the gospel. Why? Because his world wasn't actually about him. Wasn't worried about his reputation. Wasn't worried about physical pain wasn't really worried about his life, he was just about God. And that's why he could even say like in Colossians one twenty four, I rejoice in our sufferings. Like to rejoice in your sufferings, you have to believe that life is not about you. And this should be true for us. I mean, imagine I'm at work or I'm at school and someone treats me poorly. A coworker, uh, my boss, a classmate, a professor. In that moment, if life is about me, then I'm gonna be pretty unhappy. I'm to be stressed or angry or bitter or hurt or discouraged. Who knows? However, if life is about God and His glory, those moments become amazing moments of ministry chances to love and to forgive and to serve and to, to witness. And that changes everything, doesn't it? I mean, if life is about Christ and His gospel, then when my kids misbehave or fail in some way, it's not an opportunity for anger, it's an opportunity for, for gospel ministry and to point them to Christ as the one they desperately need. I mean, if life is is about Christ and his gospel, then when I see some ridiculous thing going on in our culture or some anti-Christian laws being passed, it's not an opportunity for for vitriol or indifference or worry or whatever, it's an opportunity for gospel ministry as I become more resolved in my boldness and yet at the same time more resolved in my compassion for a world uh, so desperately in need of Jesus. If my life is about Christ and his gospel, then when I get a poor health report, it's not an opportunity for anxiousness or despair or frustration. It's an opportunity for gospel ministry as I know that in living with joyful faith, I, I can tell everyone around me that my life is not my own, that my hope is not in my health, and even that I just wasn't made for this world. And This is the blessing of living for God's glory and not our own. And that's why the gospel is worth our lives, because through it, we get to live for the one we were actually meant to live for. I think some of you are so worried about your life and frustrated over your life and discontent with your life, and can I encourage you to remember that it's not your life. Because when you get that it's Christ, it really will change everything. And, and And to our point, when this happens, gospel ministry doesn't become duty, it becomes delight. Like, I get to live and tell people about the one that I was made for. When Christ and his glory are everything, When, when then when you walk onto your campus tomorrow morning or you go to work or whatever God is calling you to do, you, you get to have that responsibility, that glorious, joyful responsibility of making Jesus known. All right, point number six. The gospel is worth their lives because the gospel leads to freedom instead of enslavement. So, In this section, Paul's going to talk about the importance of of having kind of an an endorsement from the apostles. Uh, It's kind of like, I'll read a book based on the endorsement of other believers, right? Like, I, I trust them. Their endorsement doesn't actually determine if the book is biblical, but it does encourage people to read it. I've actually been asked a couple of times to write endorsements, and in my mind, I'm thinking, like, is this really going to help anyone buy this book? Uh, one was actually for a publishing company that was publishing dissertations. Okay, so it's already a hard sell. Like no one, I mean, I don't know if you've read many dissertations. They're, they're usually not very engaging reads. One of my brother has hit a dissertation, and you want to know how much I've read of it? I, I read the title. And <laughs> here's the title, just so you know. Between Speech and Revelation and Evangelicals Dialogue with Farr, Jungel, and Storff." Right, some of you almost fell asleep, like right there. You just read that and go, I don't think I can do this, right? Okay, so this guy wrote a dissertation, so already it's going to be a, a tough sell, and it's on church planting and biblical counseling. So they thought, well, maybe, you know, I can write something for it. And, but again, in my mind, I'm thinking, like, is this going to help anyone to buy this book? Because no one knows me. So honestly, I just picture someone picking the book up, reading the back, and it says, you know, you should read this book, Pastor Kim Kieran. They're thinking, should I trust her? Like, I don't, I don't, I don't even know her, right? Um, who is this person? I mean, all the people I know, they're in this room. None of you read the book. So my endorsement, I don't think it led to one sale, right? To the point, we understand the importance of a good endorsement. Like what's going to really help? Kind of keep that in mind because as we come to chapter two and as Paul continues with his testimony, this is is going to be important. So timeline here, he jumps ahead some 14 years. He's been preaching Arabia, Damascus. Look at verses one and two. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. Now, interestingly here, in a sense, he goes to Jerusalem to get approval of the apostles. I say it's interesting because remember just before this, he's basically said, I don't, I don't need their input. Because right? I got the gospel from Jesus himself, so why now go to Jerusalem and get their approval? Well, the purpose was not to get their approval on his gospel for personal assurance. He had no doubt that the gospel he preached was a true gospel because he got it from Jesus himself. But he did it to make sure that his ministry was not hindered in any way. He knew the accusations of the false teachers threatened what he was trying to do, and he did not want to, as it says in verse 2, run in vain. Now, he doesn't want to be preaching the gospel, and people are ignoring him because they think he's a false teacher. And so Paul's worried that all of his efforts to preach the gospel would be wasted if the false teachers convinced people that it wasn't a true gospel. And so he goes to Jerusalem, in a sense, to get the endorsements of the apostles. He knew the approval of their ministry would keep doors open for continued proclamation of the gospel. I mean, if we heard about a false teacher, even if they were that was untrue and they really preach a true gospel, we're not going to invite them to speak. Paul's worried about that. So he goes to get the Jerusalem apostles' uh, endorsement. That's why he says this, skipping down to verse 6. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God chose no partiality. Those, I say, who seem influential added nothing to me. So the apostles in Jerusalem didn't add anything, like we said. His gospel is true. And personally, it didn't even matter to Paul that they were influential. Now, we'll dive into this next week, but Paul didn't do what he did because of other people's opinions. He wasn't living for people's approval. And it wasn't that he didn't respect these men or even love these men, but ultimately his gospel, it was from God. And that's what he was committed to do. Now, that being said, again, he understands the importance of their endorsement. So continuing verse 7, On the contrary, when they saw that I had been trusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been trusted with the gospel to the circumcised, For he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they go to the circumcised. So like I mentioned, he points out that he didn't add anything to the gospel, they didn't add anything to the gospel, they did approve of his preaching and his ministry. Right? And it says they basically saw the, the power and the grace that was given to him, and they knew that God was at work in his ministry. And so the, he gets their approval. I mean, when you get the apostles' approval, it's, it's got to matter. I mean, if you did get a book and you look at the back cover and it said, like, best book I've ever read, the Apostle Paul, we're all going to read that book, right? And now he has the endorsement of the, of the apostles of Jerusalem. So kind of remember the big picture here, the, the idea is that Paul didn't get his apostle, his gospel from the apostles and then, then ruin it, that's what the false teachers were claiming, rather he was given the true gospel and then years later the apostles confirmed that. But what we need to notice is what Paul takes effort to emphasize. He, he wants the Galatian churches to know specifically that the apostles affirm the true gospel is one of freedom. Okay, this is not just facts, this is important to Paul. Look at verse 4. Paul's explaining why it's so important for the true gospel to be recognized by the apostles because any other gospel would result in slavery. Backing up to three, but even Titus who was with me was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Jesus Christ so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel may be preserved for you so you can almost imagine that Paul goes into this meeting with the apostles not sure what's going to happen like if they demand Titus to be circumcised then that would just add fuel to the fire of the false teachers and that's why he said Barnabas and him they did not yield like they're not giving in on this because this is a gospel issue but notice in particular why he says it's so serious it's because it would cost them their freedom right? he says it would lead them into slavery now in one sense, the apostles answered the question, right? Remember, they were saying that Gentiles had to be circumcised, and the apostles said, well, Titus doesn't have to be circumcised. And that should have closed the discussion. But again, Paul's not just worried about that. He's worried about the danger of going into that. In other words, it wasn't Paul just saying, hey, don't worry about it anymore. We're good. You know, Just do what you do, right? Paul's saying, no, that's actually dangerous. If we go down that road, it's dangerous because it leads to slavery, now, he's going to elaborate on slavery and freedom, especially in chapter four, but just slow down for a moment and think through the danger of this. False saviors enslave us because it means we need to live for them. So imagine I felt the way that I get to heaven is just by being a good person, right? That's a lot of what our world thinks. Like, they're, well, there is an afterlife or there is a God. I just, you know, got to be a, a decent person. But do you realize the true burden that this is? I mean, if I need to, to try to follow the rules and not mess up, and that eternity depends on if I'm good enough, that's an exhausting and hopeless way to live. And we see this in all the false religions of the world. All of them depend on man's action and behavior for whatever version of salvation they're seeking. But maybe it's not morality, but we still have to realize that our false gospels enslave us. Like if my false gospel is my, the success of my kids, like that's what I believe is gonna make my life right, it's gonna make me happy, that means that, that I'm, I'm only going to be content and I'm only going to be okay if they're doing well. But again, that is an exhausting commitment to make. If my well-being is dependent on the success of my kids, then my life will be tyrannized by their lives. I'm going to have them in athletics and music, multiple of both. I'm going to try to make sure that they study hard. I mean, because the answer obviously is the right college and the future career and all these things, uh, prestige, awards, earthly achievement, they all become so important. But again, do you realize how tiring this is? You're a slave to their success and you are committed to do its bidding. Most, all of us know families like this. Not, not, they're they're not Christ-centered homes, right? They're child-centered homes. And what the parents don't often realize is just how devastating this can be. If my gospel is getting into the right school, or the right graduate school, that's what I believe will make my life right, then again, I'm enslaved to academic achievement. And I, I think if we could just slow down and think about it, all of us recognize those things that we're enslaved to. Enslaved to occupational uh, achievement. Enslaved to the idea of a romantic relationship. Enslaved to the security and identity found in money. Enslaved to, to a hope for comfort and good circumstances. Whether you realize it or not, that is an exhausting way to live. And in the end, it will always leave you wanting. But when we embrace the true gospel of grace, it changes everything. Because grace brings me to God, right the one who loves me and forgives me and saves me and transforms me." That's what the gospel does, right? Remember, you know, the gospel says that we were sinners deserving hell as lawbreakers. Jesus came to live, but then Jesus came to live life that we couldn't, and then he went to the cross to suffer the punishment that we deserve. And, and so the way we receive salvation is not by our works, but by faith. We trust in Jesus for eternal life. And in this, we're brought into relationship with the one who actually loves us far more than we can possibly imagine. Now, one thing this means is that it frees us from the slavery of trying to earn our own salvation. We don't have to live moral lives to be saved. That's a huge blessing. But it means we're also free from every other false gospel. Like, I'm now free just to love my kids and actually seek their best, as opposed to needing them to be worldly successes. I'm I'm free to just see work as a mission field and, and a chance to use my gifts for others, as opposed to, that's my identity I'm now free to see money as a means of being generous and keeping missionaries on the field and and loving others rather than trying to find my security in it. I'm now free to see school as part of my stewardship that will equip me to expend myself for the the gospel, not as my my hope for the future. The gospel frees us. And so you see why it's worth our lives? Because we think we, we find our life by keeping it, but the Bible says we actually gain our life by losing it. that's what Jesus said, right? Whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. As we give our lives for the gospel, we will never be more alive. Now, one more thing before we move on, and this is kind of a bit of an aside, but I think it's an application of this idea of freedom and slavery. But if you're a Christian, then you understand, right, salvation is not by works. This is foundational what we believe but there's still that pharisaical tendency in us that thinks that, that we're saved by grace, but then living the Christian life, that's kind of on us. And in particular, we kind of feel that God's affection and his approval is based on like how good we're doing. Like, do we have a good week? So if we do our quiet times and we pray and we serve, then we feel pretty good about ourselves. We feel like, okay, me and God, we're okay. But on the other hand, when we have a rough week, quiet times and prayer, almost non-existent, or maybe it's just our sin, like we lost it again with our kids, or we're struggling with this contentment and jealousy, or we looked at something we shouldn't, and, and God seems so far from us. And, and then the thinking is, well, i got to get back into his good graces, and so I can't miss my quiet times this week. i got to go to church, maybe serve a little bit extra. i got to stop sinning, obviously, and then maybe me and God are going to be okay. And you realize it's just another form of legalism. I mentioned this definition of legalism before, but it's working on our own power according to our own rules to earn God's favor. Now, none of us want to think we're legalists because we kind of imagine that to be like having a lot of rules and things like that. But really, a legalist, practically speaking, can be someone who thinks that God's love and affection are dependent on our actions. But like we talked about before, this is so exhausting, and some of you feel that, right? You come to church even this morning and you're just tired. Like you feel like you can never do enough or you're never good enough. Or you look at your friend and she has twice as many kids and they seem to be knocking it out of the park. Or, or you hear a sermon that should be an encouragement and it just seems to remind you of how far you fall short. But brothers and sisters, this is the slavery that comes from not turning to the gospel. Not just for eternal life, but for everyday life. I mean, Paul's going to ask in the very next chapter, chapter 3, verse 3, he says, are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, so you're saved by grace, are you now being perfected by the flesh? And are you now supposed to do it on your own? So, So it's foolish to believe it starts with God, but then it becomes our responsibility. Freedom then is this. It's turning to the gospel every day and knowing that forgiveness, relying upon his strength, and then being motivated out of love and worship, not guilt and failure. And this doesn't mean that your life doesn't matter, but it doesn't determine God's approval and acceptance. Right? If my kid sins, I don't love him less, though I may love him differently, so I may love him through instruction or discipline, but I try, though imperfectly, to love them regardless of how they live. Well, well God does this, but perfectly with us. If you're a believer, there's nothing you're going to do this week that's going to make God love you more. And there's nothing that you will do this week to make him love you less. You're already loved profoundly and perfectly in the gospel. So you could have completely bombed it this week, and yet God loves you. He wants so much for you. He's present. He's active. He's uh, moving in and through your life. So I share this because this is the freedom in the gospel and we as Christians need to experience. Right again, I just hope you would turn to that gospel every day. And for those of you especially who come in this morning and you just feel tired, I hope you'd go to the gospel knowing its forgiveness and then just rely upon that strength and then be motivated through love and worship, not your guilt and failure. I've been praying for you in particular this week. I hope you know the freedom of the gospel. All right, last point, point number seven. The reason the gospel's worth the, the seventh reason the gospel's worth our lives is because it frees us to love others instead of ourselves. We've already talked about the ministry that comes from loving ourselves. It's it's an exhausting way to live. But the gospel frees us not just to love God, but to find joy in loving others as well. Look at verse ten. It seems almost out of place. Paul writes, Only then only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. For a little context, realized at this time there was a famine affecting the Jerusalem church and that whole region uh, was struggling. To make matters worse, the new converts were often being ostracized out of their Jewish communities because they'd seemingly turned their back on Judaism. That meant losing jobs, losing being a part of this economic structure, even losing the friends and family that might help them. So, so the, the Jewish Christians were poor and they're struggling, whereas the Gentile Christians weren't hurting in the same way. On top of this, don't remember that, <clears throat> as Paul points out in verses 7 and 8, he's been given a different ministry. The, the, uh, the apostles in Jerusalem were ministering to the Jews, but he's been given a ministry to the Gentiles, the non-Jews. And so you can imagine this could potentially lead to a split in the church and a division not just on ethnic lines, but on socioeconomic lines, right? There's Jews and there's Gentiles. There, there's poor and the rich, And actually, as you read through the New Testament, this becomes a very prominent issue. Even in such letters like Romans and Ephesians, they're largely addressing the Jew-Gentile divide. The gospel, though, was meant to unite us. That's why Paul's going to write later in this letter, Galatians 3.28, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male nor female, you are all one in Christ Jesus. And part of the way it happens is through the love we show one another. Where one has an abundance, they're generous. That could be time, that could be knowledge, that could be money, whatever. And so basically, the Jerusalem apostles were telling Paul, you have our blessing to minister to the Gentiles, but don't forget the poor in the Jerusalem church. Don't let this divide us. And on the other hand, you can imagine the potential unifying ministry this could have if love was shown, right? Believers sacrificing for other believers, how much that would bring together the church. And for Paul, he wanted to do this. He loved his fellow Jews, He wanted to alleviate their suffering, so he says, this was the very thing I wanted to do. Now, this tells us something about the nature of the gospel. It doesn't just free us from enslavement. It frees us to love and to do ministry, and this is a good thing. Again, the idea of loving ourselves makes us miserable. Even as I was kind of working on this this week, I thought about the different hard points in the week, and so many of them are because of my inward love, right? I'm just wanting more, wanting comfort, or wanting gratitude, or wanting whatever I believe is going to make my life better. And yet it's an unhappy way to live on the other hand paul in galatians kind of paints that picture of this is the life of someone who's saved and transformed he calls it the fruit of the spirit in galatians 5 right the fruit of the spirit is love joy peace patience kindness goodness faithfulness gentleness self-control and that's that should be the kind of life that we want like we, we don't want to hate we want to love we don't want misery we want joy we don't want turmoil we want peace we don't want impatience we want patience and that's the blessing of the gospel. It frees us just to be that person, to love others instead of ourselves. Now this, you know, we can go on and on for the application, but one particular application we can take from verse 10 appropriately for Outreach Month is that we should be a people who take care of the poor. Right? That we live in a affluent area isn't up for debate. It doesn't mean that everyone in our church is affluent, but we are a church that should have the resources to reach out to. To, to other churches and ministries in need, right? And so for the sake of the gospel, we need to be a generous church. And this is all over scripture. This isn't just this verse. Now, without that in mind, I wanted to share with you some of the things that we're doing. I mentioned last week, we don't talk a lot about money from the pulpit, but I did want to at least let you know where some of this money is going and how we're using it, specifically to alleviate suffering. And I also mentioned last week that uh, a while back, the elders and basically so the church, we committed that a certain percentage of our budget would go to gospel ministries outside of Lighthouse. So we're just going to give this to build up other churches. It's not going to be about us. It's not going to benefit us. It's increased over the years. At this point, it's uh, we'll commit to almost half a million dollars this year to ministries outside the church. Uh, I mentioned last week the kingdom ministries, right? That's just ministries that you know try to expand the kingdom, things like church planting. But the other half goes to mercy ministries. And these are ministries... Um, That These are gospel ministries that either alleviate suffering or minister in areas where there's limited resources with the intent of of, of spreading the gospel. And again, we're not just helping hurting people. The the, the mercy ministry is always a vehicle uh, for the gospel. So a few of the things that we're doing, Uh, we are supporting the outreach arm of the publisher Crossway. Recently, they let us know that we've paid for almost 165,000 resources, specifically study Bibles and other books, to be just given away free to those normally who don't have access to it. So so pastors, leaders in poor areas in particular, we've really been trying to send them resources so that they can minister and love and serve and evangelize. We've been longtime supporters of Children's Hunger Fund. Right, They minister to those who are hungry, um, and they work through local church networks. So that's so exciting. Basically, we, we give food to these pastors and they get to be the ones that give it out and they get to be the ones that then share the gospel and things like that for instance we did some for eastern europe where they're trying to minister to refugees from the russia-ukrainian war in fact overall since we started partnering with them we've provided over three million meals um we're not counting they just actually sent us a little certificate so now i know we, we, we never were keeping count We've also tried to support LABTS, the Los Angeles Bible Training Institute. They're providing Bible college level classes at minimal cost to train up leaders in the inner city. Uh, And and again, I I think we're close to 100,000 for them and just so excited for what they're doing and just tracing up people to minister in those areas. Uh, An update and a plug. Next weekend, we have our Feed My Starving Children event. Mentioned last week, but next week we'll convert the gym into a food packing plant and try to package over 100,000 meals that will, again, be sent out to alleviate hunger, hunger and as a vehicle for the gospel. Um, I think by next year we'll hit around a million pack meals that we, we paid for and package. That's exciting. But just encourage you to come out. I think there are still some spaces left. I know it's been a blessing for our family. My children have been doing it for years. There's more, but I I love that we get to do this. In fact, uh, I've said this before, but one of my favorite things about being an elder here is that I've been able to be a part of the generosity of this church. Like when you think about one day, maybe I'm supposed to be a pastor, that doesn't usually cross your mind. Like, hey, one day I'll be a pastor and then we get to give away money. But that's actually what's happened. And that's such a joy to be able to support and build up these ministries. Some of them are just doing things so much better than us in the areas that they're doing them. And that's just so exciting bigger point is we are a ministry if we're a ministry about the gospel then we need to be a generous people we need to love well as individuals and as a church and to the bigger point i hope you see why paul is so committed to gospel ministry because the gospel meant everything to him and the same should be true for us and so as we continue this outreach month i hope we will be encouraged to continue to make our focus the ministry of the gospel that's what our church needs to be about in fact, let me close with this. And I, I mentioned it last week, but I didn't expand upon it too much. But when you hear Paul's testimony, you realize that his, his life was about the gospel. It wasn't really about Paul. I mean, in fact, the things he shares about himself are actually pretty, um, uh, they're pretty treacherous, right? The things that he was doing, that is literally said that would impress us, and yet so much that would lead us to be amazed at God. And it reminds us that if we're going to be about the gospel, then Lighthouse can't be about Lighthouse, and I'm not just saying that. I mean, first of all, at some point, our church will just be a memory. I, I looked it up. There's like hundreds, if not thousands, of Lighthouse churches in the world. And so apparently even our name isn't unique. And, and it's okay, because when we get to heaven, no one's going to be like impressed with our church. Like, oh, well, you went to Lighthouse, like in Torrance? Wow, that's, no one cares. They're not going to about budget. They're not going to be about uh, attendance. I mean, because in general, we're going to be in so in awe in the presence of Jesus and just amazed at how good and great he is. We're not going to be thinking about one another and what we did and even if someone were to say, "Okay, oh, hey, I heard about your church, it's likely gonna be immediately followed by something like God was just so gracious to you, right? And it's true because we shouldn't even be here. Like we, the fact that we've survived this long is just God's grace. But understand, this should not only be what we want, like a Lighthouse will never be about Lighthouse, but it should excite us to do what we do because to our point earlier, I said, "What when we live for ourselves, it's exhausting. The same is true for this church. If we're about us, then it's going to be exhausting because we have to expend ourselves to try to grow and try to build more programs and try to impress people. But if we can just be about the gospel, that is just so freeing. That means we just get to do what we do for the glory of God. And I mean, I was just think about it. So we're coming up on some 4 million meals we've supplied. And, and do you know how many of those people have provided, that we've provided food for have thanked us? Like not a one, like no one's come up to us. Now, obviously, I'm being sarcastic. I don't really care. And we don't do this for those things. You, we do it for the gospel. But it did me think, like, you know what would be a million times better than even one of them just saying thank you for this? Is if in heaven we meet people who were fed and who heard the gospel and who got saved. I mean, can you imagine that moment? Like meeting someone that we loved through our ministry who came to know Christ. And they'll be our friends for eternity. Like we're going we're gonna to worship with them for the rest of time. And the best part won't be that they then thanked us because all we're going to do is we're just going to turn together towards Christ and be stunned by his amazing grace. Beloved, that will be better than anything we've ever experienced here on earth. Like using our money in that way, that's going to be infinitely better than anything we've ever purchased in this world. I cannot wait for that day. And so I say it with all sincerity, Lighthouse can never be about Lighthouse. We have to be about the gospel of Christ. That's what we were created to do. Will you pray with me? dealing Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy and the chance to, to proclaim and to think about the gospel. That is what we want to be about. And so Lord, would you grant us every grace to be about you and about your gospel? We thank you. We love you. We praise you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.